0: Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, as we continue to celebrate this wonderful resurrection day and study of His Word. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, and if you just wave to them uh, and flag them, they'll put a Bible into your hand and it'll be marked for your convenience to our passage we're studying today. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, would you make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today? Matthew's Gospel, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door, and then he proceeded to sit on it. His countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. For I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified, but he's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him. Behold, I've told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and they ran to bring uh, His disciples this word. And as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, and here's the word we want to focus on this morning, rejoice. And so they came and held Him by the feet and worshiped Him. And He said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Now, when they were going, behold, some from the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And they had, when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying to them, uh, tell, uh, saying, tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while uh, we slept as an explanation for the resurrection. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this day and a day set aside to celebrate Jesus' resurrection. And we thank you for the strong witness of his resurrection in the scriptures and in human history. We thank you for the personal witness that is within each of us as Christians and uh, just that, that powerful uh, delight of your Holy Spirit within us, Lord, concerning this victory and the witness to it. We pray that you would bless our time in your word, Lord, and uh, meet with us in it and through it, we pray. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be, be seated. Here in Matthew's Gospel, of course, we, we have one of uh, the records of the sequence of events that uh, surrounded the resurrection uh, of uh, Jesus on that uh, Sunday morning. And uh, you, re- realizing that Jerusalem and uh, Israel is very much a Mediterranean Uh, uh, climate. It's very much like what we experience here in California. So a Sunday morning of His resurrection would have been very much like what we are uh, experiencing here uh, today in Modesto. We're told in verse 1 that uh, all of this occurred on the first day of the week, that is Sunday, and uh, that all of these events, again in verse 1, occurred just as the day was beginning to dawn, and so it was still slightly dark, the hint of of the sun uh, rising in the east uh, beginning to uh, bring its influence. Mary Magdalene and another Mary, the mother of James, were making their way, we're told, to the tomb of Jesus and uh, where they had seen Nicodemus and also Joseph of Arimathea bury Jesus in Joseph's tomb three days earlier. And Matthew focuses on these two women in particular. Uh, The other gospel accounts mention other women that accompanied them as well, Salome and uh, Joanna. In Mark's gospel, chapter 16, Mark tells us that they were coming to the tomb uh, with spices, and the intent was to finish the anointing of Jesus' body following His uh, crucifixion, which had, uh, and the anointing of Jesus' body before His burial. Uh, it was uh, handled very, very swiftly because they wanted, uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders wanted to get Jesus off of the cross and buried uh, prior to uh, the onset uh, of the holy day and uh, and so apparently he had, his body had not been anointed uh, to their satisfaction or, or in a way that properly represented their love toward him and, uh, and and care for him, and so as they're making their way now to the tomb, uh, they're discussing uh, the problem uh, in the other gospels of of who is going to how how are we going to manage further anointing with these spices the body of Jesus, uh, given the fact of this great stone that's been rolled across the face of the cave or of of his his tomb, and this is what uh, they were uh, trying to. Uh, To navigate in their own minds as they're making their way there. It's important to realize that when they were coming to the tomb on that Sunday morning, the last thing they had in mind was a resurrection. Uh, Even though Jesus had told them and told all of the disciples that, you know, he would end up being crucified, he would end up being buried, three days later he would rise from the dead, and, and this was complete, almost completely lost upon them. And so they come there not expecting a resurrection. Good, let's get to the… I mean, otherwise they, all of the disciples would have been gathered there waiting for sunrise to occur uh, for the, you know, the evidence then of Jesus' resurrection. But they're not expecting a, a, a resurrection at all. Uh, they came to further anoint His, his dead body. Now, uh, we're told in verse 2 that there was a great earthquake at the site of the tomb and apparently caused by… Uh, the uh, descent of a, an angel from heaven. Luke describes two angels, and uh, and uh, uh, Matthew focuses his attention upon the one who does the speaking. The angel, we're told in verse 2, rolled back the stone which had uh, sealed the tomb and, uh, and, not, and not in order to let Jesus out of the tomb, like He's pounding on, uh, you know, the stone from the inside, uh, trying to get out of there. Jesus was already risen, but instead He wanted to reveal the reality of the resurrection to uh, the women that it had already accomplished. And then having rolled the stone out of the way, the things that we worry about that God is (laughs) going to take care of just fine uh, in life, uh, He took care of it, sent an angel. How are we going to remove this stone? Oh, don't, we don't need to worry about it. Uh, and, and God takes care of it in a su- supernatural uh, way. And, and so he sits on the stone. It's an act of triumph as he does so, and, and, he, and he uses it as a chair. The angels described in verse 3 his face is bright as lightning, and his clothing is white as snow. In other words, he's blinding to look at. Kind of like when, you, uh, when summer comes in its full force. Uh, here in Modesto and you go out for fellowship in the courtyard and you don't have sunglasses and all of that gray concrete out there reflecting the light into your eyes and pretty soon you're crying and weeping and everyone thought the sermon was powerful, and uh, you're just dealing with the glare of, of the concrete. But it's actually uh, even brighter than that. If you've ever uh, been skiing or been where the snow is and the brightness of the sun coming off of the snow, it, it really is uh, blinding on a sunny day. And this was the the radiation from… Uh, radiating from from the… From the angel, the effect that all of this had upon the Roman guard—we're told as we uh, read—they see the angel. They begin to shake involuntarily, uh, lose control of their bodies. They become like dead men and uh, incapacitated by uh, the fear that that they were in. These were not men that were easily terrified. Uh, These were uh, men of distinguished in uh, the Roman army that would have been given this uh, this privilege of uh, of, uh, of of guarding Jesus' tomb. And uh, so they fled and they, from their post. They ran into Jerusalem in order to tell the religious leaders to be a witness themselves of the resurrection uh, of, of Jesus and uh, inform them what had happened. Roman soldier would never leave their post for any reason. It was punishable by death. Something happened to them uh, that caused them to completely disregard any thought for their life uh, at at all, sometimes people say, "Well, I'd sure love to see an angel." Maybe not. Uh, you might not want to. You may want to make sure that um, you've got good health insurance. Uh, it'll be a, a, a cardiovascular test uh, for your your system. Uh, if, if he sends uh, one that's not… Uh, maybe the one that you would choose. The angel then addressed the women there in verses 5 through 7 with the words, don't be afraid in verse 5. And understandably, they're very, very freaked out by… again, this is not what they were expecting moments before as they come uh, in, in, the, in the morning darkness to, to the tomb. And then he declares to them in in verses 5 and 6, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for He is risen. And the angel then invited them to enter into the tomb and see the place where Jesus' body had once lay uh, within the tomb and to become eyewitnesses of His uh, resurrection. When, When we have the privilege, as we're going to have in about three weeks, have the privilege of of uh, leading a group from the church on a trip to Israel, uh, very often people will ask me either prior to the trip or during the trip or even at the end of the trip, uh, what is the favorite, uh, your favorite site that gets visited when we go to, to Israel? And always my answer is uh, the same. It's the garden tomb. Uh, the site of where Jesus's body was buried, and then the the empty tomb that uh, testifies even to this day of his resurrection. And in that site, in that location, I mean, in terms of just how profound the ro- location is, it is the site of the three greatest events that have occurred in human history, in the in the form of Jesus's death, his burial, and his Uh, resurrection. And so, really, uh, it's almost unfair to compare uh, that to any other site. The question probably should be, what is your second favorite site uh, in Israel? But one of the joys of leading a group like that and then visiting uh, the area of the garden tomb is to watch each person then enter into that uh, tomb through the narrow opening and then uh, be in there for a few minutes and then reappear back out into the, to sun, the sunlight and uh, becoming exactly like the two Marys that are here. They become personal witnesses to uh, the resurrection of Jesus uh, from the dead. The angel in verse 7 then told them to go quickly and bring the news of the resurrection to the disciples, to bring, them, uh, bring it to the men and uh, to tell them that Jesus would meet them in Galilee away from all of the he wouldn't meet them in Jerusalem where all of the religious corruption was and and where Jesus had been crucified in this awful awful thing that had happened at the hands of both religious and and secular men but but he would uh, meet them there in, in the northern israel area of galilee and uh, this didn't uh, in this uh, command that the angel had given here uh, didn't uh, preclude Jesus' meeting with them before Galilee, but that it would be in Galilee that He would give them their final instructions, including uh, the Great Commission. The response of the women are given to us there in verse 8. They obey immediately. They go running uh, out from the tomb and very, very quickly to take the news to the men. You can imagine, I mean, you put yourself in their shoes and just imagine the emotion, the one, uh, uh, what the emotion that they're coming with, a love for Jesus, wanting to further express their love toward Him and further anointing His body. And then the news of this uh, resurrection, an angel, all of this kind of stuff, I mean, really would have been... Uh, a lot going on in their hearts and we're told that they were filled with fear and the idea is this reverential awe we are on holy ground here but we're also told that they were filled with great joy, and, uh, and so they ran to bring the news of the resurrection to the other disciples. And then just as they are uh, running to tell the disciples this wonderful news, and I think that this scene cannot get any better than it already has… Uh, for them, uh, it did get better when Jesus Himself met them on the way, as it's described there in verses 9 and 10. And I want you to notice that Jesus, His commentary uh, concerning His resurrection was summed up in a single word there in verse 9, the word rejoice. And, uh, and the word literally means rejoice, be glad, be delighted. And what Jesus was communicating from his perspective is that there's something about his resurrection from the dead that gives the entire world a cause for rejoicing. There's something about his resurrection from the dead that is a cause of joy for every single person in this room, each and every one of us, and every person uh, in the world. He didn't say to them, rejoice for me. Uh, You know, I died, I was buried, now I'm risen from the dead. Won't you be happy, (laughs) you know, for me? That's not what he's communicating at all. Uh, Again, he's telling them to rejoice, Because there's something about his resurrection from the dead that is a cause for rejoicing in every single Christian in the world and and has the potential to be a cause of rejoicing in in every human being within, within the world. Well, then all of this then raises the question, why is his resurrection a cause for rejoicing? I think that probably most of you would agree with me that Easter Sunday or Resurrection Sunday is the single most exciting and joy filled rejoicing day of the year for a Christian. There's just something about this day, uh, a day set aside to remember His resurrection that even exceeds the celebration that is Christmas as we celebrate His birth. Both of them are celebrations, but there's something about this celebration of His resurrection that is, is different. And I'm convinced that it is the great witness of the Holy Spirit within our hearts as Christians to the glory uh, uh, and the, and as a testimony and witness to the truth of the resurrection and the glory of the resurrection and what it means to us all around the world, all around this city, but all around the world, in every conceivable condition in every nation in every little portion of the world, Christians are gathered together today in their own way, in their own culture, rejoicing in His resurrection. I'll never forget many, many years ago now being in Bucharest, Romania with Gail Irwin. It's kind of like an unwritten law for pastors that you're uh, always at the church you pastor on Resurrection Sunday. You just don't vacate that day. It's an important day. But I had been invited to go with uh, a friend, Gail went over to Romania. God was doing a lot uh, in Romania at that time, continues to do it, by the way. And uh, so we had gone over to check some some things out and uh, because it was follow, falling on uh, Easter Sunday, uh, there we were in Bucharest, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, on the first Easter Sunday following the overthrow uh, of the Romanian dictator Ceausescu, and uh, so this was the first re- kind of religious freedom on this level that the country uh, had had in in decades. And as we drove from the hotel, and, and, and being in Romania back in those days was like going back to the 1940s. It was so backwards as a result of, of uh, materially speaking, buildings, everything in decay. It was, like, it was like being in the twilight zone, what communism had done uh, to the country and the stripping of the wealth and so forth. But, they, but as we were making our way by car from the hotel uh, to the church Uh, that Gail was going to share in that morning, among other speakers. We passed church after church after church. And every single church we passed, as the driver would point it out, there's a church and there's a church and there's a church, every one of them absolutely filled, stuffed with people. And then great crowds amassed outside of the doors of the churches and then in a great thick line all the way uh, down the street. And uh, when we, the congregation that we were going to worship with that, that, that morning, congregation of a couple thousand uh, people crammed into a room. Uh, I, there were no fire marshals, I assure you, at uh, all on that. A couple of thousand people in this room, we are shoehorned in. I find this little seat somewhere up in some, the corner, the very corner of the balcony. I didn't want to take a main seat away from uh, a, a Romanian saint there that was celebrating Easter in such a way, and, uh, and then they proceeded to sing Handel's Messiah, and I thought the roof of the, the, the church was going to simply blow off the celebration that was going on, and the witness of the Holy Spirit uh, to the message of the resurrection of, uh, of Jesus that is as strong today as ever it was 2,000 years ago, on uh, on the events that we're looking at here um, in in the the Scriptures. And why is it a cause for celebration? And I think it's a really important question to ask because if, if the emotion of joy that that we experience as Christians and I think if you're here today and you're not a Christian and you look at it and if there if there is no foundation if there's no rationale behind uh, the joy if it's just a joy for the sake of joy if the joy isn't based in some reason or based in some reality then it would look like all of us are engaged in some irrationality on on resurrection sunday morning the fact of the matter is, is that true joy cannot be self-existent. It just, joy is a byproduct of, of something else uh, and, uh, and a, a, of some cause for joy. And this morning I want to use the remainder of my time to just uh, briefly mention a number of the reasons why Jesus' resurrection is a cause for joy this morning. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it declares Jesus to be the Son of God, uh, just as He claimed. And, uh, and it demonstrated as true His claim to, uh, to divinity, His claim to be a God in human flesh, to be God the Son and the Son of God. During Jesus' public ministry, He continually claimed to be equal with the Father. And he claimed that the Father would raise him from the dead after three days. And if his claim to be the Son of God, if his claim to be equal with the Father had uh, not been true, then he would have been left dead in that grave. If his claim to deity uh, was true, then the resurrection would be the Father's way of substantiating that claim. And so the Father did in his resurrection. The Holy Spirit put it this way in Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And Jesus' resurrection was heaven's validation of all that Jesus taught, including his claims to be the Son of God and God the Son. A second reason that the resurrection is a cause for joy is because it reveals Jesus to be the promised Messiah, the promised Savior of the world. The Old Testament had given prophecies by God concerning the Messiah and that He would send into the world. And the the prophecies that that God had given by His Holy Spirit concerning the coming of this Messiah, uh, they necessitated uh, the uh, death and the burial and the resurrection of this Messiah. And Isaiah chapter 53 clearly predicted the death of the Messiah... And uh, as Isaiah writes, speaking really of Jesus in one of the most uh, profound and pointed passages concerning Jesus in the Old Testament, and he was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. In other words, the Messiah is going to die. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave, again, speaking of his death with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, speaking pointedly of his his, uh, death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Again, in that same chapter of Isaiah, therefore I will divide him, that is the Messiah, a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death." And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. And yet, despite the, the repeated uh, the prophecies concerning the death of the coming uh, Messiah, in Psalm 16, verse 10, uh, David wrote by the Spirit of God that the Messiah, though he would die, he would not remain in that dead condition long enough for his body to experience corruption, but that he would be resurrected. David wrote there in Psalm 16:10, For you, speaking to God the Father, shall not leave my soul in Sheol. And then he shifts gears now and he speaks of the Messiah. Nor will you, speaking to the Father, allow your Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. Yes, he will die, but he will not remain dead long enough for his body to corrupt. If Jesus had been born into the world... And he had lived an absolutely perfect life, an absolutely sinless life. He performed all of the miracles that, that he had performed, taught all of the amazing truths that the Bible records that, that he taught. And then he had died and yet not been resurrected. Then he could not be the Messiah. And Jesus' resurrection is a constant reminder to Christians that our faith in Him is very, very well placed. In other words, if, uh, what if He fulfilled all of the other hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament related to His, second, his first coming, uh, but He failed to fulfill the prophecy concerning His resurrection? There wouldn't be an ounce of joy in this room this morning. We couldn't get you into the room. We couldn't get you to sing one song to celebrate uh, that reality if it really was reality. No, you wouldn't have any joy in a Savior that had done really, really good, really good on a lot of levels, but, you know, just hadn't quite knocked out that Psalm 1610 thing uh, concerning uh, rising from the dead. If that were the case, not a single person could have joy or confidence at all. It's because he also fulfilled that prophecy in Psalm 16 that confirms the fact that our faith in him as our Messiah and as our Savior is well-placed. Another reason that the resurrection of Jesus is important, I only have 40, so just relax, is because it reveals that man can be justified through simple faith or simple trust in Jesus. To be justified in the eyes of God means that when God looks at me, me a sinner, it means he looks at me and he sees me just as if I'd never sinned. And the idea is that Jesus has provided mankind with a forgiveness that is so complete and so thorough that when we put our faith in Him for the forgiveness of our sins for the rest of our lives in eternity, positionally God looks at us and sees us just as if we'd never sinned. It's one of the great definitions for a theological term, justification, just as if I'd never sinned. It's exactly uh, what uh, what it… what it means. And none of us has a righteous standing before God on our own. And so how do we gain this justification, this right standing before God? As I said, by putting our faith in Jesus, our trust in Him as the Savior that pleases heaven, as the the salvation that pleases uh, God, And then we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. And the Bible says that Jesus' righteousness is then put to our account. For He, Paul said famously, He, speaking of the Father, uh, made Him, that is Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. When we trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, the very righteousness of Christ is put uh, to our account, and it is that righteousness that God sees when He sees us because we are in Christ. And the resurrection put God's stamp of approval upon the truth of the fact that man is justified, not by works, not by human effort, but, uh, but by simple faith in Jesus. The apostle Paul put it exactly this way in his letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He said, if he said it, and he's speaking about righteousness by faith, shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus uh, our Lord from the dead, who has delivered uh, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. During Jesus' public ministry, he declared that he would provide the satisfying payment for our sins. He declared uh, to uh, openly that the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the hour of the, his crucifixion came Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins upon that cross, but, but, how are we as human beings to know that what He said was true, that His sacrifice was acceptable for the forgiveness of our sins? And the answer to that but is the resurrection The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of His Son for the forgiveness of sins. Hallelujah for that. And then the resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals Jesus' absolute authority over hell, over the entire uh, demonic uh, realm, His victory over hell. Revelation chapter 1 and the Apostle John is describing his interaction with the glorified uh, Jesus in, in uh, return following his ascension into heaven. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I mean, the awesomeness of, uh, of Jesus in that, uh, the, that heavenly context. But he laid his right hand on me, and, and he said to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. And then Jesus went on to say this, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades, that is hell, and of death. By the time Jesus got done with death and hell, those two great enemies of mankind, death and hell, unspeakable enemies, To each and every one of us, the one speaks of a physical death, the other speaks of an eternal death, and and both of them, uh, awful enemies to every single one of us, cruel enemies. But Jesus, by the time He got done in His death and His burial and His resurrection, He had defeated them, and not only defeated death and hell, but He reduced them to keys on His keychain. I have the keys of death and hell. What is a key? A key represents authority. And when someone has a key to uh, uh, something, to a door, it means they possess a complete authority over it. They can do what they want with that door. They can lock it. They can unlock it. Complete authority. And Jesus has complete authority over death and hell. He has defeated them in His resurrection. And He has, in His death, burial, and resurrection, found a way to share that victory with us. Another reason for the, the resurrection is a cause for joy is it because it has provided us with a high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father. It provides us with a high priest, and the imagery here is very much Old Testament, and if you're new to the Bible, I can't explain all of that to you this morning, or you'll throw stones at me because we'll be two hours in before we leave the point. But it speaks of the fact that we have, as a result of the, the resurrection, That we have a high priest now who sits at the right hand of of God the Father and who ever lives to make intercession for us. And that he is the one who is able to save to the uttermost. Hebrews chapter 7, verse uh, 25. And therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost. Someone has said to the guttermost, and that's true. But he can save from the guttermost to the uttermost but he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he ever lives to make intercession for them. Romans chapter 8, verse 34. And who is he who condemns? Uh, It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. I don't know... That there is a more comforting thought to any Christian in the midst of great difficulty and trial than the knowledge and the realization that we have a high priest in the person of Jesus Christ in heaven praying for us. I don't know that when I could visit anyone, it's some great loss. In their life or some uh, a Christian who is in the in the middle of some great tragedy in their life I don't know that I could say anything greater to them that would be an encouragement to their heart than to remind them of the fact that your high priest Jesus ever lives to make intercession for you and he is interceding for you praying for you in the middle of the trial that you find yourself in. What a great source of joy from this resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus is a cause for joy because it reveals to us His uh, victory and His power uh, over uh, over death. As uh, Pastor Alan has already read to us, 1 Peter chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mankind is in need of hope. You can't live without hope. Mankind is in need, as God recognizes, we are in need of a living hope. Each and every one of us needs a living hope. And what is a living hope? It is a hope that has conquered death. It is a hope in our life that lies beyond the reach of this enemy called death in the human condition, a hope that cannot be affected by death. And God has provided us with that quality of hope, that confidence in the face of death, through the death and the burial and the resurrection of his Son. And the reason that Jesus can offer everlasting life to us is because he has defeated death. You must possess everlasting life in order to then uh, give it to someone. And only Jesus can offer everlasting life because only Jesus has conquered death. And so mankind needs a Savior, and he needs a Savior who has conquered death, and Jesus is that Savior. One day, the Jewish religious leaders, it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible in this regard, the Jewish religious leaders came to Jesus and they asked him for a sign that he was the Messiah, uh, a sign to verify his claim to be the Son of God and God uh, the Son. And they had signs enough. For three and a half years, he'd filled the entire land of Israel from north to south to east to west with raising people from the dead, lepers being cleansed of their leprosy, people being healed, food being multiplied uh, to multitudes. I mean, they had more than enough signs in addition to his fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning him as the Messiah. But now the idea was, you know, if you can give us just one more sign, then we'll really believe in you. And Jesus, in His grace, He condescends to them. And He responded by speaking to them of His resurrection and of His authority over death. And He, He answered and He said to them, an evil and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given to it except the, the, singular, the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And what sign did Jesus give uh, to these religious leaders? The sign of His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so too he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And the idea is three days and three nights only. And he's speaking of his resurrection And what he was communicating to the Jewish religious leaders and communicating to every single person in human history and every person in this room and within the shot of my voice is that we should never trust in any Savior, in any Messiah, in any philosophy, in any salvation, in any master passion of our life that has not conquered death, and only Jesus has. And Jesus spoke, not only spoke authoritatively about life and death, but then He proceeded to demonstrate His authority over death through His resurrection. And the fact of the matter is concerning joy and concerning rejoicing, no one can know true joy. Or peace in life until they have an answer for death, until we possess a victory over death. And only Jesus in human history has provided that victory. I, I love the story uh, uh, of the response of the great scientist, uh, Sir Michael uh, Faraday, and uh, a, a very, very strong, strong Christian. And, and the day came as he grew old and uh, after a very, very, uh, you know, prestigious career, uh, came come to the end of his life, and, and uh, as he's on his deathbed, someone came to comfort him with some speculations of man uh, concerning death and concerning uh, eternity. And uh, Dr. Faraday, his response was, Speculations," He said, I know nothing about speculations. I'm resting on certainties. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed uh, unto him against that day. And because of the resurrection of Jesus, the Christian alone can face uh, death based upon certainties. With the confidence that our Lord has conquered death, He has deliberately and personally done so as a historical fact so that we might then have the confidence in facing uh, death of knowing that it merely ushers us uh, into the glory of eternity in heaven. And all of the discussions concerning death and what happens after it are comparative speculations. Independent of the life and the ministry and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ in 2,000 years of changed lives because that living Christ was not only raised from the dead 2,000 years ago but raised to live in our hearts as Christians. And I don't know about any other Christian in this room but I uh, think that many of them if not all of them would agree with, with me. But as it relates to myself, there is no other explanation for the life that I live and the quality of the life that I live apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that He lives inside of me in the person of His Holy Spirit. And this morning, if you are not yet a Christian, why don't you join the celebration this morning? Why not make all of these blessings that I've talked about your own? And how does it happen? How does it happen? It happens through faith. By you simply just coming to God this morning and saying to God, your creator, and saying, God, I, uh, I uh, agree with your assessment of me as a sinner. I confess myself to be a sinner. And I believe that, your assessment of the fact that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you. And you know, Lord, it doesn't seem inconceivable to me that you could be so holy that but one sin in my life would separate uh, me from you and separate me from the relationship with you that I've been created for. And that recognition that until I am engaged in the relationship that I've been created for, there will always be an emptiness, there will always be a search, there will always be a sense that there must be something more to life than I have experienced. And the reason that we feel that before becoming a Christian is that there is something more to life than we have experienced, and it is the most important thing in life and that is to have a personal relationship with God and to say, God, I am a sinner and I confess my sin to you. But God, and, I, and I believe that my sin has separated me from you. But I also believe what your Bible says and that is that you loved me so much that you sent your son into the world to live the life that he did and then to die the death that he did and then to be buried and to rise again on the third day, to provide me with a gospel and to provide me with a salvation that I could never provide to myself. And God, I believe that that is the Savior and that is the salvation that pleases you. And this morning, I choose to put my trust in that Savior and in that salvation. And when you do that in an instant in time, the greatest miracle that a person can ever experience uh, in, in their life occurs. All of their hip pain goes away. No. The greatest miracle is to have God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come into our lives and now begin that relationship with God and give us the power and the the will and the desire to live an entirely different quality of life, the one that is described within the Scriptures, and then to enjoy all of the blessings of that death, burial, and resurrection and more that we have spoken about here this morning. And it's all there for the asking, and it's all there for the receiving. It's very, very important to give some thought to death before it comes. And I think as I observe the culture that I live in, and I, and I interact with the culture as much as you do, I look at how invested people are in planning their estate, planning for retirement, thinking and planning to the nth degree now that we have uh, you know, um, TripAdvisor and, and the Internet and all, what, you know, what vacations we're going to take, the amount of effort that goes into making that vacation, you know, the absolute greatest thing that can possibly be, or the amount of effort and attention that people give to some kind of a hobby. And, and an entire life spent like that and not even five minutes' time given to the thought of death its existence, why it exists, what happens at death, and how can I be prepared uh, for death. And there's only one necessary and adequate preparation for death, and it's faith in Jesus, the only one who has conquered death. And this morning, Jesus would love to share that victory with you as well, and absolutely transform your life in this life, and then to say nothing of what comes uh, beyond. There will be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after the service who would love to pray with you and talk with you and to begin that relationship with God today. When we, as we look at these kind of things, you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not really good at uh, pep talks. And uh, I know it shocks you. It, uh, it, it does. I... Um, I'm a content person, and and I'm terminally loaded. Uh, in uh, the, the dial is just terminally loads toward toward that side. I remember when Carol Channing was with us here one day, um, "Hello Dolly" and all that. She uh, she sat right here and, and was married to Harry Collegian, a long-time Modesto. And, uh, and she, she came, and, and uh, Harry, a, a strong, strong Christian, and, and Carol became a Christian as well. And uh, so she came to the service one time, and uh, so I got a chance to chat with her for for a few minutes afterwards. And she's used to seeing people up on stage and all of this and the whole deal and everything. And uh, and and she came up to me, and, and and we didn't we didn't have a long conversation, but she said to me, she said, the the content is everything to you, isn't it? <laughs> and. And I don't think she meant it as an offense. But I'm never after the emotion, not supremely. I'm always after the will. I'm always after the mind. And when that can understand what Christ has done and the importance of the things that we're talking about, then the emotion will always follow. But I can never have an emotional experience that isn't based in a reality and in a strong reality. And so this morning, this is why I take a time where maybe the temptation would be to have a pep rally and all go out and and head out to to explain these things with some kind of depth so that we can realize now there is great cause for celebration in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together now and we'll pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, and Jesus, we thank you for providing each and every one of us who knows you with such a deep and meaningful and permanent causes for joy and rejoicing within our lives. And a joy and a rejoicing that is within us by your Holy Spirit that can never fully be expressed in song as much as we may want to and as much as we may cry out, Lord. The songs that we sing and we're so thankful for them, they are just but a manifestation of this very deep pool of joy that you have brought into our lives along with hope and many, many other things. And we bless you for it. And as we come to the end of this Passion Week, Lord, the Palm Sunday and the Good Friday and now Resurrection Sunday, Lord, we say thank you for the price that you were willing to pay, that we might enjoy the quality of life, not even supremely outwardly, but in our spirits and in our hearts and in our minds because of your sacrifice and your victory. We bless you, Lord, with one heart this morning, and we do so in your name. In Jesus' name, amen.